Why did Cloud9 beat FaZe at this year's 2018 Boston E-League Major? What was the one big reason why? And why are we toxic online? Why do we have such trouble holding on to our values, specifically in forums like CSGO matchmaking? Well, that's the stuff I'm going to talk about in this episode, episode 19 of the Truth CSGO podcast. Are we rushing in or are we going sneaky beaky like? All right, before we get into it, a bit of news. It was only a few days ago that North decided to bench Cajun B and replace him with Mertz. Mertz is a young player, also from Denmark, who's played in about 50 teams in the last year, it would appear. Although his last team he played with was Red Reserve. Uh, but today, Kierby from Australis has left and has moved to North. According to Kierby's Twitter, this was the hardest decision in my career. Might, as come, might come as a shock, but sometimes in life you need the courage to take a step backwards in order to move forwards towards new goals. So, 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 so he started off his new phase basically by negging North, um, calling it a step backwards. Anyway, this has blindsided everyone in Australis, it would seem. Danny Sorensen, the coach, Zonic who I've talked about before on this podcast as having seemingly the best relationship with his team out of anybody. Uh, he wished KB good luck on his Twitter, but he also said that he was disappointed and, uh, to quote, has never experienced anything like that in his 19 years of CS. Um, so that's amazing. The coach didn't even know. Apparently the players didn't know, and they only found out two hours before some sort of press release that was going on. I mean, insane. Plus... Um, on a side note, um, Danny Sorensen has been in CS for 19 years. That's crazy. Anyway, uh, at the same time, a screenshot of Config, who's the star player for North, or someone who looked like Config, has surfaced uh, sitting in the offices of Refresh, the company that part owns or majority owns Australis. And uh, this was sort of a screen grab from a, a video that someone at uh, Refresh made. But uh, rumors are a swirl that perhaps Config's going through some sort of trade with Kierby. Now, worth remembering that Kierby came from Dignitas originally, which already had MSL and AZ on the team. MSL and AZ are currently on North. So he knows what it's like playing under MSL. He's previously said positive things about it, uh, and there was obviously a factor in this. Poor old Dupree. He said he was nothing but disappointed. So a bit of drama for today. And uh, in my previous podcast, I did say something had to happen with Australis. A bit of soul-searching was going to have to go on. It appears that uh, these are the changes that are going to happen. I, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but there you go. Hopefully, this will mean North finds themselves and Australis refine themselves because both of those teams had a, had a bit of a shocking end to 2017. And uh, I'm a fan of players on, uh, on both sides. Anyway... Let's move on to the Boston Major 2018. So the semi-finals, we had FaZe versus Mouse Sports. I'm just going to go through the major points from these big uh, big matches here. Uh, that was promising to be a really good rematch from their 
hardcore showdown at the ECS Season 4 Finals. Uh, I thought the observing actually was pretty terrible in this match. We missed a lot of the kills and confrontations. Could be that the meta, uh, at least for these two teams, is a bit rushier. FaZe managed to beat uh, Mouse Sports on Nuke again. Seemed like Mouse Sports really couldn't hold it together mentally towards the end against FaZe. Olaf Meister was a freaking asset. Uh, nice to see him actually shining in that team, really, for once. Um, FaZe actually seemed to have the better cohesion, and I say that a lot in this podcast, but practically speaking, what it means is that the most part, it means that the players aren't rushing into a new part of the map without a teammate at least throwing a flashbang in there for them first. So I think they've actually improved a lot, which is an amazing thing that that team has improved. But uh, there you go. Nico really shone here, which is unusual because he traditionally hasn't fared well against Mouse Sports, his ex-team. He got over 60 kills. So it's actually 60 kills straight on uh, the two maps. Um, yeah. That was, that was a good sign. But as we get to, it wasn't enough. Anyway, next up was Na'Vi versus Quantum Bellator Fire. And this was the uh, series where Flamey set a record for the biggest kill amount on the first half of a regulation game. Um, I think he got 32 kills, but I don't really know. I watched the VOD again from his point of view. I don't really think it was Flamey that was playing so well. It was more like QBF really weren't playing great. Like, I don't remember Flamey being flashed once, and it wasn't like he was playing, you know, any particularly special um, positions on the CT side on Mirage. Uh, we had G2 versus Cloud9, and the big thing I noticed here was that the boys w- were doing a lot of uh, that cohesive action I'm talking about. And when I say the boys, I mean Cloud9. They were flashing for each other. They were playing in dyads like SK. We don't know what a dyad is. It's basically a group of two. And um, I'm pretty sure that term came up in the sort of development of family therapy around like, I don't know, the 50s or something. But it became a term for the groups that happen within families. So let's say you've got a family of a mum and a dad and a son and a daughter. That's a group of four, but within that group, there will be dyads that emerge. And it might be that the dad is closer to the daughter and the mum is closer to the son or vice versa. Um, And, you know, dad always goes camping with the son or mom always cooks dinner with the daughter and that's how the best teams work you might have a cohesion within the group but within that group you've got natural mini teams and no one ever gets left behind this way no one's ever isolated and when one player uh, or one member of that group must leave for a certain period of time then either a triad is formed or a new dyad forms um you know depending on uh how many people are left but there's all there's never anybody by themselves and uh i really felt that dynamic pushing and pulling with cloud nine uh in this game particularly against g2 i haven't felt like i don't think i've really felt that because i didn't really feel like they'd been fully either fully challenged up until that point up until that series with g2 and also uh they hadn't really been playing to this level yet so it was like they stepped up. Uh, then we had SK vs. Fnatic. This was a great series, particularly because Fnatic, uh, as um, as I mentioned, feel like they're on a bit of a uh, an upwards trajectory as well. SK didn't didn't really have their usual magic here either. Yeah, okay, they had a they had a stand in, um, but SK really I think had the better rotations, and it came down to the third map on Mirage 
where Fnatic made some bad pushes were punished for their mistakes, which is how SK beat you, really, in the end. Um, apart from their similar use of the dyad structure. Uh, but what overall, I think what's great about this run from Fnatic is that Crims really put himself back on the map. He was playing like an absolute G.O.D. And Lecro really showed for me why he deserves to be on this team for the first time. So that's awesome. And uh, I'm going to be keeping much more of an eye on Fnatic now than I was certainly at the beginning of that, um, that new roster. Then we had Cloud9 versus SK. Obviously, tough for SK to play a second best of three on the same day. But, you know... At the end of the day, you're sitting down playing a video game. Uh, first map was Mirage. Cloud won at 16-3. Cloud 9, sorry. Cloud. Getting all Final Fantasy on here. Uh, this was absolute insanity, the way Cloud 9 trounced SK on Mirage. Um, and you know, one sign that Cloud 9 have cohesion right now, have reached some sort of individual assimilation. Have you guys noticed the way Automatic cricks his neck? flexing it from right to left, sometimes forward in between plays when he's waiting. Bit of a trademark. Um, probably someone's made a couple of threads about it that I haven't seen. Um, well, during one of these games, during it was during Mirage versus SK, and they're just Rush doing it as well. And uh, that to me was particularly telling. Like, have you ever done that with a good friend? I had this mate at school who had a particular way of holding his hands when he was demonstrating a point. It was quite idiosyncratic. He had his hand, his fingers out straight and his thumb was kind of tucked in, in in a way that no one else did. And where he got it from, I don't know, maybe his dad. Uh, maybe he had to do it because of the way his hands grew. Either way, for some reason, I started doing it. It was like I, I physically mimicked him. Um, and he was my best friend at the time. And I started doing it so much that it sort of became ingrained in me. And later, when I went to university, I noticed a friend actually do the same hand motions and slowly pick it up from me. And that's, a, that's like a physical meme that passed unspoken between best friends. And to this day, I still do it. So to me, quite, quite telling that, um, that this was going on between the Cloud9 players. And one of the greatest moments, actually, uh, I'd like to point out here. And this is, a, uh, this is a tip of the week, I guess, or a tip of the episode or a tip of the day for all you matchmaking or uh, face it fiends out there. Uh, three Cloud9 players went top mid on a force and they met SK with three scouts or something. I can't remember the guns. And I'm not sure who started this tactic, but SK certainly did it themselves against Virtus Pro in ESL 1 New York 2016, which I rewatched recently. Um, actually based on a recommendation by Thorin, which was which was a great match. I, I uh, heartily recommend it. Best of three. Goes all three maps. It's wonderful. So here's the strat of the week. If you've got a force on the CT side on Mirage and you can only afford, let's say, a scout, don't just put him up there by himself. Have two buddies join the scout in mid-window. doesn't matter if they've got USPs because you can take down the player or whoever gets tagged up by the scout. You should be able to tag up someone. And it also, you know, even if you can't do that, it gives whoever's top mid too many people to shoot at, too many targets to shoot at. So you can at least pop off a bit of damage before, you know, anyone actually dies. So next time you're, you're doing a five-man, give that a burl. Uh, second map was Cobblestone, and this is where SK suddenly remembered they were the number one team in the world, specifically Fallen. Cloud9 weren't as good as their strats. But uh, it turned out later that this map was only left in the veto because Valens made a mistake. Valens is the coach. Anyway, Cloud9 still brought it back on Inferno, which uh, definitely isn't SK's map, best map by any means. This is a map where I thought, okay, Cloud9, you are definitely on that train track to winning the whole thing. We had FaZe versus Na'Vi as the next series up. Na'Vi absolutely got 
banged by FaZe. Now, Zeus actually released some comms of their match on Mirage against Mouseport, which was from Mouseports, which was from the new challenges phase. And uh, if I'd been Zeus's PR agent, I definitely would have chewed him out for it. Poor old Zeus comes off as strat dry, uncommunicative, not even like positive on a basic level. When Kane, the coach, asks for a timeout, Zeus says no. And the only strat Zeus seems to be able to have is C9 or fake C9. None of the players actually on Na'Vi seemed particularly positive or enthused either. So I don't know what is going on with that team. I have, like, I have no idea. I will say this. Language, language is very important. And, uh, and the reason I say that is because if you think about Zeus's most famous tweet, and I'll paraphrase it now for you. Well, actually, I'll, I'll read it uh, exactly. I won't give up until I win a motherfucking major. You just think about what that actually means in the context of him having now won a motherfucking major. The logical conclusion is he has now given up. (laughs) Uh, And I think those comms, those stupidly released comms between uh, Na'Vi and Mouseports kind of paint a picture of someone who does not give a fuck. If I was paying that guy's salary right now, I would call him into the office. Anyway, let's move on. Cloud9 versus FaZe. This was the finals. And if you didn't see it, this is the match. Uh, these are the three the three maps that I uh, urge you to watch. Now, if you've somehow managed to miss the fact that Cloud9 won this uh too bad i'm not gonna hide that this is one of the big points of this show i have one big theory as to why they actually did or the most important thing in my mind as to why they won and i'll get to that but first up lovely to see bardolf and ddk commentating bardolf had so many wonderful metaphors this series in fact he he's like your he's like your crazy your your weird uncle who always has jokes you know at christmas time like he's just always got jokes and sometimes they're a bit inappropriate but Bardolf's just got so many metaphors that you can't remember any of them. It's like if someone goes, what was a Bardolf metaphor? You're like, I don't know. I laugh at them constantly and I appreciate them dearly, but I, I can't remember any of them. Um, oh, no. Wait, here we go. Here's one of my favorite ones. It was from Mykonos. It was from Mykonos and I can't remember the teams. I can't remember the teams. But it was something... Oh, no. Now, this is this is going to backfire anyway. Bardolf said something like, mouse sports... Other jet ski? Nah, I fucked it up. <laughs> it was something like mouse sports with the jet skis and Cloud Nine uh, is the ocean or the water. I, look, that's the thing. You cannot do him justice. Now, this was a series that definitely made this major worthwhile. Cloud Nine won two to one, and they didn't seem to tilt us hard. They didn't make as rushy plays as we're used to, especially on Inferno. Tarek, the in-game leader, had a couple of amazing pauses, uh, sort of mid-round, especially on Inferno, where he took top mid. The whole team took top mid. Everyone just waited. FaZe got nervous, sweating. One or two of them rotated to B. And then Tarek and Co. pounced. Now, Rain was really the no-show here for me on FaZe. Just didn't have the sort of impact we're used to seeing him have. Carrigan also didn't frag enough for the team either. And unfortunately, when you compare Tarek's fragging power to Carrigan's, 
You get a similar scenario to when FaZe have played SK traditionally, where Fallen combines amazing calls, especially mid-round calls, with huge numbers himself. And unfortunately, that's the standard. Uh, Guardian on FaZe actually was the player who really showed he was the biggest pro in the scene. Like, just the biggest pro in the whole scene. I don't care. I don't care about your MVPs of the year or whatever. Despite, despite Guardian's team crumbling around him, at various points, he was always making plays. He clutched, I think, like eight 1vx rounds, the most clutches in the whole tournament, and he posted huge numbers. But rather than going into each match, I just want to talk about the major reason why I think Cloud9 beat FaZe. And that, to me, was equality of desire. And I'll explain. Now, firstly, this theory became clear to me on Overpass, when Nico pushed into short and Automatic was waiting with his AWP and killed him. But Nico continued to push the same spot another two more times, without even a flash to clear it. What that meant was that Cloud9 knew FaZe would end up going A, because if you've even watched one VOD of FaZe playing Overpass, it's pretty clear that Nico is on B, when he's lurking and the rest of the team are either mid or bathrooms. So this was a definition of insanity. Now, Nico's not an idiot. He's a good player. He's a smart player. This is obviously a case of nerves and emotions. And I know when I've been triggered or really surprised by the actions of someone I've played against, it's as if part of my own nervous system kind of snaps and I just enter this non-thinking mode and rush exactly the same spot. It's as if I can't believe it. So I just repeat the exact same action again, like thinking, surely that can't be right. This also means, this sort of state of, uh, of short circuit means that I don't really tell my teammates what's going on either. I stop communicating. I, I, I sort of just become focused on this one strange moment where my idea of reality snapped. And I think a partly, uh, you know, a contributor to this might be that we haven't seen Automatic play this area with an AWP before. It hasn't been in the meta, in fact, for Overpass. I don't know. I I'm not sure I've seen it in the last year and a half either. But I've seen Nico do a lot of lurking around that B-short area, a lot of lurking around Monster, a lot of lurking around Con. Had some very successful plays in the B-short connector area as well. So this is... A, it's like a short circuit. And the way you combat that sort of a short circuit moment or the way that it, uh, you prevent it from the, in the first place is by having a real connection with your team, by constantly being communicative, by being gelled with them, by them always being aware of what's going on with you, what happened to you, how you died, where you died from. And that obviously was not the case in this scenario. Look, what, what was clear about this match was that Cloud9's team are a very even spread in terms of their desire to win. And the genius behind kicking nothing in Shroud was that the balance of hunger in the team was out of whack with those two older, less hungry players. I mean, I've said before, this team was going to win based on Stewie2K's ability to draw the rest of the team in and up to his level of hunger and up to his level of desire and getting in Tarek and Rush to other young guys gave an immediate boost to team morale. And now that's one of the problems for Nico. Olaf, Guardian and Carrigan, they're not at the same level as he is in terms of his investment in the game. Yeah, sure, like Guardian's never won a major, but he's been at three grand finals, right? 
And yeah, sure, Olaf hasn't won as many as his teammates, his ex-teammates, JW, Flusher and Crims, but he's won like two, I think, right? Uh, yeah, Carrigan's never won one, but he's also had a shit ton of other accolades. These three guys have so many other accolades under their belt that Nico doesn't have. And they've been in the game long enough to know that it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And who knows whether Rain feels the same as Nico. I, I, you know, even if he does, the man displays all the emotion of a Buckingham Palace beef eater. And you add to that the lack of a merged national identity. Nico's psyche, his psyche... His psycho psyche, his psychology, his demeanor, his mental state, whatever you want to call it, it is at a major disadvantage to the players on Cloud9. And this is the number one player on that team. This is a playmaker. This is the guy who wins you the rounds, whose performance makes the difference traditionally. Now, if the phase players can stick together until the next major, I would say they have an even better chance of winning it than they did this year because Guardians hinted this will be his last team. He's got more invested in winning a major before he leaves. And they'll have the bittersweet taste of getting to the last finals and not winning in their mouths. At the very least, I think that gives them all a similar platform upon which to build their expectations for the next one. So that to me was the big difference between Cloud9 and FaZe in this one. A disparity of motivation. And before we move on, of course, I just love to gloat about the fact that I called the C9 era back when Tarek and Rush came in. I gave them another Guernsey after they won DreamHack Denver. Uh, I could feel it. I could feel that cohesion coming together. Uh, I did call out Stewie2K for not perhaps being mature enough in his approach to how much respect he gave the other teams. But uh, either I was wrong or he fixed that stuff in between uh, the major. So um, I will answer to the guru from now on, Truth Stradamus. Um, soothsayer, McTruth, whatever you want to call me. Now, instead of a toxic player of the week, this app, I just want to talk about this article I read. It's a really interesting article in Medium by a guy called Joe Edelman. It was called How to Design Social Systems, and it was a follow-up to an open letter he wrote to Zuckerberg that was basically reaming out Mark Zuckerberg for screwing the human race up and causing the social apocalypse. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, in this article, he talked about the notion that social media doesn't allow us to practice our values to test out who we are, that it's too punishing if we try to use it as a test bed, especially for teenagers. It can be paralyzing. Um, and I guess what he means by this is that if we post things that uh, perhaps, you know, aren't necessarily how we really feel about something, but maybe a little controversial, if we, if we play with ideas that may be dangerous in our minds, we get too punished for them. And so as a result, we end up not engaging with the platform at all, apart from, you know, uh, uh, value signaling. What is it called? Status signaling, where we simply post things that we know will get a good reaction from people. Um and he posits this as a reason why we might be having trouble with the notion of values and trouble with defining values in modern day society. I'll, I'll give you a quote. <clears throat> One example of an artifact is the state of online privacy. Early social platforms had two modes of privacy, full anonymity or full publicity, neither of which are naturally occurring. 
In real life, it is not practically impossible to become invisible, walk into a restaurant and start yelling or disagreeing with a group of people otherwise being cordial with one another, and then walk off with impunity to do it again. This power to operate in society with total anonymity is largely new. <clears throat> so, I guess the reason I wanted to talk about this uh, is not necessarily because, because of the reason he wrote it. He was really discussing values, but to me, this kind of stuck out. Uh, and I'd like to talk about it in the context of CSGO, in the context of the people who we play with randomly, who take that opportunity, uh, you know, people listening to them, <laughs> in other words, and they take this opportunity to say racist or hateful stuff or to shout at strangers or to put strangers down to insult strangers. And, you know, it reminds me of when I was in year 10 or 11 at high school and there were a couple of boys in my school who were just obsessed with saying the N-word. I don't know whether as an Australian I can actually say that. Uh, anyway, we all know what the N-word is. But these were white boys. They were 15 or 16 from wealthy families. They lived in the middle of Sydney in Australia. They would walk around school just saying nigger randomly, like as if they just enjoyed saying the word. There was no context to it sometimes, most of the time. It was as if they just got this, like a simple kick out of literally saying the words in front of other people. And now, had there actually been any black people at my school, it's possible they wouldn't have done that at all. But the greater idea is that amongst our peers, we have like a safe space, right? Where we enjoy flirting with the taboo. We enjoy pushing the boundaries of society in a way that were society actually to bear witness or hear us, uh, it might be harmful to us. There might be repercussions. These boys weren't racist, as far as I'm aware. They, they didn't even have any black people they knew to be racist towards. It was simply a testing of the boundaries. Now, amongst my group of friends, who are mostly in their early to late 30s at this point, we still regularly talk about each other's mothers as if they're basically our personal sexual partners. Um, and, like, you know, I don't know about myself, but some of my friends are definitely grown men. You know, some of them have children. Uh, they're doctors and lawyers, right? The delicious relief from the shackles of society is still intoxicating to them. And this delicious relief retains its uh, flavor for life, it would seem. It's not that any of us have a desire to talk about each other's mothers on a basis daily, but we all feel the pressure constantly of the cognitive dissonance of modern life. And, th and that cognitive dissonance is something along the lines of we're all animals in, you know, when it comes down to it. We're all either trying to reproduce or provide the best chance for our offspring to reproduce, which means we're basically in competition with each other. If you're rolling down the snowball of the intellectual dark web right now, you'd be familiar with Jay Peterson's favourite term, the dominance hierarchy. We're all a part of it. At the same time, however, we all need each other, right? We want to be liked by each other. So we place a bunch of rules on society for the collective benefit, even while the worst animal instincts growl on in all of us, right? Now, unfortunately, the net is so nascent in not only its lifespan, but its organization, not only have young men in particular not yet found a better place to be rude and get away with it than the fast-moving chat on a Twitch channel, or the anonymous boards of HLTV, or a game of matchmaking, but there's also not enough rules in those spaces yet either. 
So when a dickhead comes over the comms and spams something antisocial or hate-filled or whatever, all I can do is report him for griefing on the mic. None of the penalties that would occur in real life can occur in the game as yet. Do I think at some point there will be repercussions in the real world from everything we do online? Well, basically, yes. Uh, Because the more time we spend online, the more important it will be to separate out the parts of the internet for their most important functions. And I reckon that's why websites with forums or comment sections, as I've reported, eventually hire moderators to delete the most unhelpful of comments on their boards or sections. Because there are people who mistake those parts of the web as opportunities to feel alive or who don't or haven't had the peer group in which to test the boundaries of good taste safely, as we all seem to need. They haven't had these opportunities to explore dangerous ideas or say the N-word out in a forum where they can't be prosecuted. And uh, for some reason, that seems to be a need of human beings. I think that will eventually happen with Counter-Strike and probably not this iteration, probably not Global Offensive. Uh, But at some point in the future, for sure. And before you say, how could that possibly work? Well, there's very advanced audio analysis right now. I can't even say it's advanced because it is quite widespread. Skype listens to every single thing you say with your friends, analyzes it for particular themes, nouns, adjectives, what have, what have you, places, <clears throat> and then literally sends you advertising, sells information to advertisers based on what you said. Now, it's not hard to imagine for minimal CPU drain, Counter-Strike runs audio analysis in the background of all voice chat uh, and has a, a bot in place that kicks anyone who says anything antisocial. It's, it's not hard to write an algorithm that recognizes the N-word in a conversation, right? And I reckon the, the moment Valve realize that if they do this, they can listen to all of our comms, see whether we've won or lost, hence, you know, are in a good mood or a bad mood, um, or perhaps we've talked about fidget spinners, right? And then offer us informed ads on the CSUI at the end of the match. Now, I don't know, this may sound outlandish to you, But we've seen the way Valve will exploit people's worst natures with skins. How long will it be, do you think, before we've got ads on the Counter-Strike UI? I give it maybe two years, maximum. So I guarantee you that somewhat this technology is going to be implemented. And before you cry freedom of speech or complain that you wouldn't want a game that kicked you the moment you said the N-word... There'll be another game by that time and it will base its platform on having no rules. And you can play that one with all your friends in year 10 and 11 who still get a kick out of using, you know, taboo words. Uh, Meanwhile, I'll be over here in civilization with my friends on CS talking about uh, banging each other's mums. Now, enough of the social critique and futurism. Uh, Personal news. I have actually taken a month off all Counter-Strike. In fact, all computer games in general. I threatened the notion last podcast, but I've actually gone through and done it. January 30th marked the beginning of the month because February doesn't have quite enough days to make a full month, and I didn't want to cheapen the experience. So my next step is probably going to be about how I'm trucking. Day 15. 
or thereabouts, it will be a tough time. It's already been tough. <laughs> it's like I have to use my um, imagination again. Um, there's a lot of things that I want to be doing, but um, much like quitting cigarettes in the past for me, there's almost a biological urge to play Counter-Strike, um, which you know I'm not going to go into right now. I want to uh, dig into it a bit. In the next step, I'm going to try and get a psychologist who deals in computer game addictions. I've got my eye on one particular guy in Sydney who's quite well known. Whether he'll talk to me or not, I'm not sure. So stay tuned for something along those lines. In other news, I have created a CSGO DreamBot. Um, so bizarrely enough, I had to look at these Twitter bots for work and I found a little script that seemed easy enough. So I have input a bunch of parameters into a Twitter bot and a bunch of content, including, you know, every player who's sort of active in the pro scene right now, um, a bunch of locations on well-known CSGO maps, all the guns, and then a bunch of fun outcomes. And so I've got this little bot that has little dreams of imaginary moments from imaginary matches. It is the absolute geekiest thing I think I might have done in my life. But you can find that bot on at CSGO Deep Dream. Some favorite snippets thus far. Uh, a couple of days ago, it tweeted, NBK sprays down banana with an org and is taken out by swag. Yesterday, it tweeted, Angel pushes playground with an AK and wins the round. And this morning, it greeted me with the tweet, Nico pushes through smoke into truck with a 5.7 and misses every shot. So if you're like me and you occasionally watch and play too much Counter-Strike and find yourself dreaming about Counter-Strike, you are not alone. Uh, finally... I'm still desirous of putting together a gambling episode. I've got a couple of stories and interviews that are sitting on my hard drive. So if you've got any gambling stories, let me know because I really need a story from someone who lost money, who is anti-gambling. If you've lost a bunch of money on skins, let me know. Um, we'll do a call. It'll be a little Skype and uh, I'll put you on the episode. Um, you can contact me on the truth at Twitter, uh, the truth, the truth at Twitter, CSGO podcast. You can contact me on Twitter at the truth CSGO podcast or via email, the truth CSGO podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, enjoy the game. I certainly won't be, but that's for next step.